since we joined YouTube, we've been getting a ton of questions in the comments section and surprisingly few haters in the comments section. Also been getting questions via Instagram, via Twitter and via email. And today we are going to answer as many of those questions as possible. And there's so many questions that this is going to be a two part series. So today in this first part, we're going to answer questions about electric cars like Tesla's. Are they still tax efficient? What is a director's loan and who can that help to save tax? Should doctors consider buying additional private pension or NHS pension? And are money box companies still a good idea if you have private practice? Then we're going to talk about family tax finances, some amazing tips there towards the end. And finally, we're going to talk about the controversial school fees dividend diversion scheme. And if you've got caught up in that, you definitely need to check that out. So hopefully this is helpful. We love getting your questions. Keep sending them in. We look at all of them and we use them to improve the content that we provide and make massive episodes like this. This is the first part. Next week is the second part where we're going to be talking about holiday homes, investment properties, rental properties, and some GP specific tips. So if you're not subscribed, then you need to hit subscribe so you don't miss part two, which is coming next week. Let's get into today's mammoth episode. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast, TikTok's favorite specialist medical accountant, Steve Nichols from Nichols & Co in London. Hi, Steve. Hi, Tommy. Nice to be back. Thanks for inviting me on again. Thank you. Yeah. First of all, like I said, apologies for cancelling our previous engagement. I was in hospital, as some of you may know. I severely injured my hand, but that's going okay for now. But uh, yeah, you are TikTok's favourite accountant because you got quite a big following on TikTok. And do you want to just tell me the couple of stories that oh, okay. you told me before we came well, on? Yeah. Okay. So it's two f funny stories on TikTok. First of all, I was amazed when I was in an Indian restaurant a few months ago now. And I was just buying a beer before we sat down. And the guy, the waiter behind the bar, suddenly looked at me and said, I've seen you on TikTok. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and then he said, oh, you didn't have a moustache last time you were on TikTok. So again, I thought, blimey, he's quite, he's got, you know, he notices things. And that, you know, that made me laugh. The other TikTok thing was I did a talk on TikTok and all the comments came back was, why is President Erdogan of Turkey giving us financial advice on TikTok? So they all think I look like him. So again, I thought that's quite funny. And so anyway, they're the two funny TikTok stories, if you like. I've never seen you in the same room as President Erdogan, so <laughs> I can't deny or... Well, I've never worked as a double for him, but if that sort of work comes across, I don't think I'd take that job anyway. I think it might be a bit dangerous. Yeah, could be one to avoid. Stick with being a specialist medical accountant because, <laughs> okay. you know, apart from being on TikTok and being your waiter's favorite TikToker, you have a long track record of advising doctors, which is why you're on Medics Money and you're on today because we are going to take, I think it's the most amount of questions that we've ever hit someone with. So <laughs> I hope that you're ready and feeling refreshed. So we're going to start by talking about some GP specific questions, then some general tax planning 
questions. And that's based on something you mentioned last time you were here about money box companies. Yeah. We're going to talk about family tax planning and the controversy around school fees sort of schemes that are floating around. And then we're going to finish off by talking about holiday homes and investment properties. So we are yeah. literally going to cover a lot of ground today. And thanks for you know being so open to answer these questions. Okay. Should we just get straight into the GP questions first? Yeah, sure. And can you tell me how you've been helping GPs to make sure they get all the prescribing drug income that they're due? And for non-GPs, do you want to just do a quick dispensing versus non-dispensing versus drug income that GPs get and then how you help them? Okay, well, this is largely for non-dispensing practices that we do this for. The dispensing practices are quite different, really. So what this is, obviously, one of the sources of income, a source of income for GP practices is the drugs which they purchase, prescribe to patients, and then are able to reclaim from the NHS. And these are normally called personally administered items. They make the claim on an FP34 claim form. And this is a source of income that is it's quite complicated, to be honest. It's quite misunderstood by clinicians and practice managers. It's quite complex in making the claims. And what we're able to do, which not, I don't do this work myself, but one of my managers does who specialises in this, is they're able to go into a GP practice. Obviously, we know what profit they should be making on personally administered drugs. So when we're doing a GP set of accounts, we look at that. We look at the profit margin on drugs. And then if it's less than we think, we'll try and work out what the reason is for that. And we'll look at that. And, you know, we've been quite successful in making both historic claims and also sort of explaining to the GP practice how they should be claiming, what's going wrong and making things work sort of better in the future. Now, it is a significant source of income to GPs, and the manager that does this for me estimates that per 1,000 patients, the underclaim might be, with a, you know, with a practice between 500 and 1,000 pounds per year. So it can be quite significant. And again, we can make historic claims on this. And I think the largest one, I mean, I can't remember the figures exactly, but I think we've made an historic claim for a, a GP practice local to us. I think it was about eighty or ninety thousand pounds we were able to go in and go back, and obviously, that I think it was. I think there were two GP partners in that practice, and they were delighted with that. So, this is something that we don't do it all the time, but for certainly all of our GP practices, we look at this income source, we look and see if it's less than what we expect, and we know what should be being generated from this, and then we can go in and look at what the practice is doing. Often, make an historic claim. And then going forward, we can put systems in, in place to make sure they're not missing things going forward. So that's what we do with those claims. So if there are any GPs out there who'd like us to have a look at this for them, then please get in touch and we're pleased to do so. Yeah, this is so important for many levels. I mean, you know, as a business owner, and GP is a business, we are in the business, I'm a GP partner, so we are in the business of helping people with their health okay but we are a business we have to remain solvent and make money so we can still continue to do that business the fundamentals of business is you need to get paid for work that you've already done and these personally administered items the gp practice has already done this work but they just haven't got paid for it and that is a disaster and on the partnership course we go through this in detail and like you we've seen some absolutely massive underclaims and this is legitimate money that the work has already been done but because the claims process is slightly complicated or the practice doesn't have adequate systems to make sure 
that the claims are processed and recorded correctly so that they can get paid, they just have missed out on the money. And, you know, partnerships are getting squeezed at the moment by cost of living. The amount of money that they receive from the NHS is going down. So it's really important to get paid for work you've already done. And so I love that tip. That is a massively great tip. And if you are a partner at a practice and you haven't had a look at your personally administered items, I strongly suggest that you do because you know, you've already done the work, but you just haven't got paid for it. And if you're running a business where you do work and don't get paid for it, it's not ideal. Yeah. So again, we do this both for GP practices where we're the accountants and tax advisors, but also for practices that, that you know, have other accountants working for them. So again, if anybody's interested in that, please let me know. Yeah. And also you alluded to the power of having a specialist medical accountant there, because basically the way that you work out whether or not someone might be a bit low on their claims is by benchmarking, right? So you look at the practice and then you've got data for thousands of other practices and you go, look, you've got 12,000 patients and your personally administered items claim is a thousand. It should be 10,000, for example. So you might want to look at it. So power of benchmarking as well. So love that. Yeah. And we know straight away whether it's, I mean, I've never seen an overclaim, to be honest. So, I mean, we sort of go in expecting there might be, well, actually, to be honest, I have heard about overclaims, actually, thinking about it. But, uh, you know, it's not difficult for us to look at that. And if you have proper accounts prepared properly, of course, that's the other trouble. If you're not preparing the accounts in the right way, this won't be apparent because perhaps the, the income and the costs won't be sort of brought out in the account. They'll just be in with a load of other data. So that's helpful if you do have a specialist medical accountant looking at that. Definitely. I think it's a good thing. I don't see any reason why people shouldn't look at that. Yeah. And if you have underclaimed, go back and look at your systems and update your systems so that in the future you don't miss a claim. With templates, it's really easy to make sure that you have a robust system in place here. And the difference I see people that have claimed everything versus haven't, it's just systems. Systems and processes is very boring, but unfortunately it's one of the secrets to running a effective GP practice. All right, I can feel the non-GPs getting twitchy here because we have got some pretty tantalizing topics coming up, including school fees and money box companies and electric cars. But two more GP questions, if I may. (laughs) A lot of GPs ask us, if you're leasing a GP surgery to my partnership, will there be stamp duty? So stamp duty and GP partnership premises. Okay, well, anybody who has a lease has to pay stamp duty on the lease if it's above a certain amount. I mean, that's just the way stamp duty and leases work. What this point is about is something I had a look at a couple of weeks ago, I think it was. You have a situation where it's very common for the GP partners in the surgery not all to be property-owning partners. So we had a situation where there were three GP partners in the GP partnership and two of the partners owned the property. And they wanted to put a lease in place for, you know, good commercial reasons between the GP partnership and the property owners, and that's fine. And when you do that, you've got to pay stamp duty on the lease. And the point here is two points, really. First of all, solicitors have been told by the Law Society, don't give advice on stamp duty. I don't know why. It happened a couple of years ago. So we're always being asked to advise on stamp duty now, whereas in the past, I think the solicitors would have done this. But I don't know why that's happened, but it has. And secondly, with GP partnerships, if you have a lease between a lessor and a lessee, which you always do with a lease, somebody's the tenant, someone is a landlord, then if the same parties, if the same people are both lessors and lessees, so in my circumstances, I had two partners who own the property, and those same two partners are also partners in the partnership, then the stamp duty is relieved, in this case, by two thirds, because there were two people who were both lessor and lessee, or landlord and tenant. So this is the point you shouldn't miss. 
if there's a if there's a lease between individuals who are partners in the property owning partnership and the GP partnership, then make sure you're claiming the stamp duty relief. It's a partnership relief. It's not only to do with GPs, it's to do with anybody who is both a lesser or an lessee. So that's a quick point. If you're putting a lease in place with your surgery premises, make sure you're paying the right stamp duty. And if you're not, ask your solicitor. I don't know if they can advise anymore, but certainly we advise on those sort of stamp duty points. Yep. Another massive point on the Medics Money GP partnership course that we cover is just what, like you say, you just don't want to fall into that trap. Another thing for partners is basically if you don't have a 31st of March year end, listen really carefully to what Steve is about to say, because tell me about basis period reform. Okay, well, basis period reform. If you do have a 31st of March year end and switch off, if you don't have a 31st of March year end, then in the next tax year, that's the tax year 23-24, your profits are going to be adjusted to bring you into line in 24-25 with a March year end. So what's going to happen in 23-24 effectively is you're going to be, let's say you're a September year end, then your 23-24, you would normally be taxed on your September 23 profits. In this 23-24, you're going to be taxed on your September 23 profits plus your profits from the 1st of October 23 to the 5th of April 24, less something called overlap relief, which I won't go into. And those extra profits are going to be taxed in 23-24. And if you wish, I think most people will make an election to have the, that extra tax payable over five years. But so, so what they're doing is they're bringing forward tax. So you would have paid this tax anyway. You're now going to have to bring it forward and then pay it over the next five years. Now, that will also have a consequence, a lead on for your superannuation. Superannuation is basically based on taxable profits. So if your taxable profits are going up, so your superannuation is going up. And the key thing here is if your superannuation is going up and your taxable profits are going up, that's going to use up cash flow. And if the cash flow is using up, there's no cash flow for drawings. So what we're doing is we're looking at all of the non-March year end clients. We're saying to them, look, Keep drawings as they are. Don't increase drawings. Perhaps don't draw out your capital account if you're used to doing that each year because we've got to make provision for this because there's going to be demands on your cash, both with extra tax and extra superannuation. Now, the extra tax will be a fifth a year of that tax for five years, but nonetheless, that's a fifth extra that you weren't expecting. So that is going to hit cash flow for everyone with a non-March year end. So that's the basic point. If your accountant isn't chatting to you about that at the moment, you need to bring it up and say, look, when the basis period changes, what are we going to do about putting extra cash aside to pay this tax early? So you're not getting extra tax necessarily, but you're having to pay it sooner than you would do otherwise. And it's going to be a cash flow issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's still so many people that aren't aware of this. Okay, so just to reiterate, if you do not have a 31st of March year end, and your accountant hasn't spoken to you in some way about this, you know, speak to them, please. And if they stare blankly back at you and say, what are you talking about? Probably give Steve a call or one of the other experts on Medix money, because this is really important from like you said, you're going to pay the same amount of tax, but the cash flow impact and the super impact is massive. So that is another thing we cover on the course. All right, brilliant. So that is it for GP questions. We are on to general tax planning questions. 
So last time you came on, we talked about something called money box companies, and we got a ton of emails and Instagrams and TikTok comments about this. So are money box companies still a good idea, even though interest rates are going up? And do you want to start for a quick rewind for you know, what is a money box company for those that didn't see the previous video? Okay. Well, a money box company is just a name for a company where a doctor with private medical income trades through a limited company and doesn't take all of the profits out. So typically, I might have a client who is an NHS consultant and has private practice. Now, his NHS or her NHS salary might be considerable. If it's a senior doctor, they might not have, they might not have to draw out all of their private practice income. And traditionally, what they would do, or what lots of my clients have done over a long time, is not draw out the profits of the private practice, leave it in the limited company. They have to pay corporation tax on those profits, and then they would just leave those profits in the company. When they finally give up private practice or retire, and you can only do it when you give up private practice or retire, they would then liquidate that company. They would make a capital gain. The capital gain would be equal to the cash that they've left in the company and they would then claim entrepreneurs relief which everybody's heard of and they'd pay tax on those profits at 10 percent now it's much better paying tax on profits at 10 percent than taking those profits out as a dividend and paying now if you are an additional rate taxpayer nearly 40 percent tax on those profits so that's what made those money box companies so popular and everything that i've just said there still works What's changed with money box companies is people are no longer happy just leaving cash in a company. And the reason is because inflation was 11% last year. So if you leave, let's say £100,000, because the numbers are easy, if you leave that in your company for a year or last year, you know, the, buy, the purchasing power of that money went from 100000 to, you know, 89000 and so a lot of my clients were saying, well, Steve, it's all very well waiting to get this 10% entrepreneur's relief, but what about inflation? We're losing purchasing power. What can we do? And a lot of them said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest this money. Now, obviously, if they invest now, I don't give investment advice, so nothing I'm saying should be construed to be investment advice, please. But working with, you know, we, like everybody, work with a sister company that's a financial services regulated company. We'd look at that with a client. The, the regulated people would advise on the investment side of it, and they would be putting it in investments. Now, the problem with that is you might lose your entrepreneur's relief. I think you would use your entrepreneur's relief, but other people have a different opinion. But my opinion is you'd lose your entrepreneur's relief if you took that cash and just invested it, let's say, in a stock market portfolio or something to try and get some growth. But what people were saying was, I don't care if I use the entrepreneur's relief, I'll still be better off. Because if you leave those funds in the market, let's say, and if the market rises, of course, there's always risk. And let's say you just got a 4 or 5% return on your investment over five years. You'd be better off losing the 10% entrepreneur's relief and getting taxed on capital gains when you left the company at 20%, you'd still be better off if your investments have performed well enough. And so that's a change which I saw probably last year and for the last 18 months. Lots of my clients with cash in holding companies or cash in money box companies were saying, I'm not leaving it in cash. I'd rather lose the 10% entrepreneur's relief put it in the market and try and get four, five, six percent return if I can, and I'll still be better off even if I have to pay 20% capital gains tax. So that's just a change that I've seen in the last 
18 months, two years, which has been accompanied by high inflation. When inflation was less than 2%, people didn't really care. They just left the cash there. It was safe, didn't have to invest it, and they were happy to get the 10% tax relief when they liquidated the firm. But that's changed now, and people are looking for ways to try and, I guess, to counter inflation. So, I mean, the money box companies haven't changed, or holding companies haven't changed. What's changed is inflation rates, and that's made people look at perhaps it's better to invest and pay a higher rate of tax than not invest and get the low rate of tax. Yeah, that's super interesting because we've been in this low interest rate, low inflation environment for so long. And uh, I'm not a child of the 70s, but you might remember the 70s, Steve, no offense. But, you know, (laughs) interest rates have not all, there's a whole generation out there who's used to having an interest rate of like less than 0.1%. You know, that is not normal. Historically, interest rates have not been that low. Inflation is high at the moment. So it's fascinating how that is changing so many factors. And I'd never thought about how that would change having money box companies. And some of the other things I'm going to talk about later, these issues or these sort of issues that I'm looking at for clients now have come about from high. We're going to talk about investment properties in a moment, buy to lets. Well, obviously, I just read on the Telegraph today, they think by the end of the year, interest rates might be five and three quarter percent. Well, if buy to let mortgages go to that, you know, a lot of people are going to be selling buy to lets. And because the tax on buy to lets now is rubbish if you're a higher rate taxpayer. And if the interest rates go to that high and buy to lets, when you, if you're on a fixed, if you're interest only, which lots of people are, when they renew that after a couple of years, it's really going to make a difference to the economics of the buy to let situation for them. Related to what we said last time, another question we keep getting, and I'm sure you do too, is are electric cars still tax efficient? All right, let me just re- go over the electric car situation. So. Electric cars, I've had this where GPs in partnerships have bought electric cars. That's not particularly tax efficient. I mean, it's not the end of the world, but it's not particularly tax efficient. The situation where an electric car is tax efficient is if you trade through a limited company. So if you trade through, so if you have a private practice, which lots of my clients do have, and they trade through a limited company, then electric cars are great. And first of all, if you want an electric car and if you've got the cash to buy them because they're not cheap, of course, you can finance them and everything I'm talking about will work if you finance them as well. So what you can do with an electric car is you buy an electric car, perhaps you buy a Tesla for £100,000 if you can and want to, and that will reduce your corporation tax profits by £100,000. So, you know, that's a terrific saving in year one. Now, the difference between an electric car and a petrol car is if you did that with a petrol car, first of all, you wouldn't get anything like £100,000 right off. And the benefit in kind that you'd have to personally pay on that electric car is often really high. But with an electric car, the benefit in kind is very modest as well. So with an electric car, you've got a great corporation tax deduction. And the benefit in kind that you have to pay personally was very modest and so you know, it was a great tax deal. And also all the things you can need with an electric car, like the charger and, you know, all of the insurance and the tax, that's all paid by your company as well. So you get a deduction for that. So a lot of people were thinking the budget, well, what are they going to do? Well, electric cars at the moment don't pay road tax. From 2025, they're going to have to pay road tax. And they haven't said how much that's going to be. But obviously, that's an additional cost that didn't exist before. The other thing that's coming in from 2025, so between 25 and 26, for the next three years, they're going to increase the benefit in kind charge by 1% a year. But that will still be very modest. So in summary, 
what I would say is if your circumstances are right, so if you have a private practice and you're running that private practice through a limited company, and if you want and if you can afford to buy an electric car, you can get it on finance, that's okay, then electric cars are very tax efficient and remain to be tax efficient and will still be tax efficient going forward from what Jeremy Hunt said in the budget. So I run a business, it's not a, obviously a private practice, I run a business through a limited company and I have an electric car because it's just a very good tax deal. Awesome. Good update there and an awesome summary because we get that question a lot. Okay. Is it tax efficient to make use of a director's loan account? Okay, so this is something that uh, I'm going to try and explain it very simply, but it is a complex area. And, you know, if you want to do this or take advantage of this, then you should talk to your accountant and make sure you understand exactly what's going on. But this came up the past couple of months. I've had two instances where I've had doctors who have traded through limited companies and have made, you know, have done well and have quite a lot of funds in those limited companies came to me and one of them wanted to repay off a mortgage and one of them actually was involved in a divorce and needed a lump of cash to come out of the company to deal with a divorce settlement. But it's the same principle. What this is, it says if you want a lump sum out of your limited company, how's the best way to do it? Now, obviously, a normal way to do it or a traditional way to do it might be to pay yourself a dividend. Now, that's fine. But if you want to get £100,000, if you're a additional rate taxpayer. That means if you pay 45% tax, so now if you were in excess of £125,000, you're going to be paying 45% tax this year. So if you're in that situation and you want to get a lump sum out of your limited company, how would you do it? Well, if you do it by dividend, the company is going to have to pay you 160000 in order for you to receive that 160000 pay the tax on it and be left with £100,000 in order to settle your divorce settlement or pay off your mortgage. So clients of mine have said, well, look, that's so much money. I, you know, it's huge. What is there any way around it? And one way around it, now I'm keeping this simple. It's more complex than I'm going to say. I'm trying to keep it simple. One way around it is to borrow the money from the company. So if you were to borrow £100,000 from a company, you would have to pay, or the company rather, would have to pay approximately £33,000 tax on that. So you borrow £100,000 and there you've got the money for your divorce settlement or to pay off your mortgage. And the company now has to pay £33,000 in tax. So that's a big saving compared to, having to for the company having to fork out one hundred and sixty. dollars So it's gone from 60000 in tax to thirty-three. Okay. So you pay that money to the Inland Revenue. Now you go on a few years now and you finish trading in your company. You're going to retire or you're just finishing trading. You don't have any private practice income coming through the company anymore. So what you then do is you say, right, I'm going to liquidate my company now. I don't need it any longer. I've retired. I'm going to liquidate my company. Now, in those circumstances, what happens is that £100,000 loan that you've had is effectively written off. You don't owe it anymore but you've got to pay tax on it. And you pay tax at the entrepreneur's relief rate of 10%. So you've got to pay £10,000 in tax. The other thing that happens is that the £33,000 that you paid to the inland revenue when you took out the loan is repaid to the company. So now the tax that it's cost you to get that £100,000 out is £10,000. So we've gone from a situation where we have to pay out £160,000 to get a dividend of 100 in our hands for whatever purpose to a situation where to get 100,000 pounds out, 
We've liquidated the company. This might be several years later. And we've effectively paid £10,000 tax. Just let me go through the bit about the company repaying the tax. What the revenue is say effectively is when you borrow money from a company, you borrow this 100000 they effectively say, well, look, if your company can afford to lend you 100000 it can afford to lend me £33,000 worth of tax. And when you repay that loan, when it's written off in a liquidation, the 33000 is paid back. So that's quite standard. And what I've explained here isn't a scheme or anti-avoidance. It's just the basic rules of director's loan accounts and liquidations of companies. And lots of clients find this very attractive, going from the 160000 to basically costing you 110 to get £100,000 out. Now, I will say it is more complicated than that, but I think I'll just go through the broad basic points. If people want to inquire or ask about it, obviously we go through the minutiae of the detail, but that's the broad basic points for people to get hold of, Tommy. Yeah, sounds useful, definitely. And I think, to stress what Steve's saying, if you're thinking about doing that, definitely get some advice. Next question. Again, we're getting this a lot at the moment because the pension rules have changed a bit recently. So should doctors be buying additional NHS pension? Okay. So the first thing I have to say, everybody has to say is, please don't construe anything I'm saying as investment advice. I haven't come across this for years. And I think, you know, I'd even half forgotten about it, to be honest. But obviously in the budget, the annual allowance for pension charge went up to 60,000. And obviously the lifetime allowance has disappeared. Now, for lots of the people who are my clients who aren't medics, they're saying, well, look, I can't do anything on this because the Labour Party have said they're going to reverse it all anyway. So what's the point? However, I think Labour have made it, I think they've said that they wouldn't be reversing it for doctors because the whole idea of getting rid of the lifetime allowance and increasing the annual allowance was to retain doctors to keep doctors working. So I don't think Labour would reverse that for doctors. So perhaps it's not such an issue for medics. But the basic thing is, you know, you can buy additional NHS pension. And again, this isn't investment advice, but if you're thinking of making additional pension contributions, perhaps into a SIP or into a defined contribution type of scheme where, you know, your pension is dependent on the stock market, you know, you should consider, you know, buying additional NHS pension. It's index linked. It's guaranteed by the government. You should certainly consider it. I'm not saying it's the best thing to do for everybody, but you should certainly consider it. And we're being asked more and more. And again, we're going to come on to people selling buy-to-lets in a moment, and they're raising capital when they do that. And some of them are saying, well, what should I do with this? And some of them, when we discuss with it, are buying additional pension contributions, NHS pension contributions. So again, I think this is something that people need to be aware of. Again, I think because of the annual allowance problems, people hadn't really considered it very much in recent years. But since the changes in the budget, I think certainly as part of a financial review, looking at people's pensions, people reti- people's retirement plans, this is an option which I think is going to become more popular. And again, we're certainly being asked to look at this with clients and work out, you know, do some detailed calculations on it. So again, I just highlight it's something we're being asked about quite frequently now, or not, you know, much more than we ever used. I don't think I've been asked about it for years. And then suddenly everyone was saying, oh, what about additional pension, Steve? So just to highlight it to people really say it must be an option. Yeah. And I think the general point here is that, you know, those changes that Jeremy Hunt made were a pretty seismic shift in pensions taxation. And anytime there's a seismic shift in tax rules or regulations, it's always a good point to think, 
okay, how could this benefit me? How could I use that to my advantage? And I think you've outlined some of that that's there. We've also got a ton of content about this as well, because you know, if you're skirting around some of these more punitive marginal tax rates where you might lose your tax-free childcare, for example, if you go over 100,000, some of this can make a lot of sense. So definitely check this out because seismic change of rules means you need to think about how it affects your situation. Great. Okay, so let's move on to some questions about family tax finances. And I know that you know about family tax finances because you work with your daughter, which is really, really cool. I love that. And we talked a bit about the pros and cons of that before you came on. Well, you only said pros, actually, of working with your daughter. I can't see any cons with it. I, well, mind you, there was some upset at the beginning, to be honest. I think she found it harder than I think she was expecting. And that caused a few tears, to be honest. But no, she's great. And she's, she helps. We've been talking about the financial some of the financial services side of things. And she works on the financial services side of things. She's dealing with a doctor who wants some additional pensions today, actually. So, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoy working with it. It's, it's great. Yeah, I can't knock it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so there has been a lot in the papers recently about something called the School Fees Dividend Diversion Scheme. So what is it? And if someone has signed up to it, what do they need to do? Okay, well, this is something, I mean, again, all these sort of mass marketed tax planning schemes, I think have had their day a little bit. I mean, I think bespoke tax planning works. But you've got to you've got to be careful. And if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And this, I think, was one of those was one of those schemes. Now, what it basically did is if you had a business or you have private practice and it was a limited company, what you were being advised to do was to give shares in your company to a relative. And the reason for that is because this relative would set up a trust for your minor children. Now, if you set up a trust for your minor children, then any tax advantage, it disappears. You're not allowed to do that because otherwise everybody would be setting up trusts for their kids and paying for school fees and all sorts of things through the trust. But this tax planning said, give shares to your brother, let's say, for example, he will set up a trust for your minor children. And then income that goes into that trust that can be used to pay school fees will be taxed on your minor children and not on you. So if you were an NHS doctor paying 45% tax, then any income that that you draw to pay your kids' school fees will be taxed at 45%. If your kids are taxed on that income, then they've got £12,500 of income, which is a personal allowance, which everybody has, which is taxed at a rate of zero. They've then got approximately another £30,000 of income, which, if it was dividend income, might only be taxed at 8.75%. So, you know, there was a great advantage. I mean, that gives £50,000 worth of school fees per year per child. So unless you're going somewhere very exclusive, it's going to cover most schools if you've got that level of income. Now, this scheme was very popular. And I was asked about this by several clients who were saying, look, my colleague is doing this. It was tax planning. There was a trust set up between you and the company and the trust then paid the school fees. They were saying, look, my colleague's doing this. It's saving him or her a fortune. Can I do it, please? And it's very difficult when you're in those circumstances because you're having to say to a client, no, I don't think it works. You can't do it. And then they would be saying to me, well, this other firm of accountants says it works. They're chartered accountants. Why can't we do it? Well, fair enough. It's difficult to argue with that. But I'm pleased that we didn't have any clients that were in that. 
it's interesting, actually, this was all highlighted originally by a guy called Dan Needle, who used to work for Clifford Chance, I think, in the city. I think he was their tax partner. And he was also the chap who I think was largely responsible for Nadim Zahawi having to resign as Tory party chairman. So again, he highlighted this. The revenue have now come out and said, yeah, this doesn't work. And so if you're in a situation where you've taken advantage of this scheme, and we've had several people have come to us about this, then really you've just got to settle your taxes. If that income has been taxed as your kid's income, then you're going to have to do revised tax returns. You're going to have to pay the tax that the revenue now say is due, and that will almost be at a higher rate because if you're going from zero or eight and three quarter percent tax to maybe 40% tax, then it's going to be a big tax charge. You might not get a penalty. If you say you relied on professional advice, we may be able to stop there being any penalty payable. That's, uh, I think that would be, I think you should be able to avoid a penalty if you've relied on professional advice. But you will have a charge to interest, of course. So that, that's tell me what you've got to do if you've done this scheme now. It, you're going to get caught out sooner or later, I would think. So the best thing to do probably is to come forward now, get in touch with the revenue, get your affairs in order, pay additional tax. If you don't have the funds, you know, perhaps we can come to an arrangement with the revenue to pay it over, you know, a period of time. And so that's it. That's the school fees dividend diversion scheme. It's dead in the water now. It never worked. It's been highlighted. It's been in the press, as you say. And I think that's the ins and outs of it, really. And again, with tax planning, I would always be aware of mass sort of bespoke tax planning has a much better chance of working, in my experience. And this mass tax planning that was around a few years ago, I think has had its day. Yeah, I think a few take-homes for me there. One, you're right, it was Dan Needle, and he's actually coming on the podcast. I had to cancel him for the same reason I had to cancel you initially, was because I injured my hand, but he's coming on. I think the general principle there is, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And if you stick to that, rarely do you get caught out. And I think the final point is, you know, bespoke tax planning on an individual basis, great. But a one-size-fits-all scheme as you said, there's been numerous examples of this. I think that film thing was another yeah. one that's completely blown up as well, isn't it? So great tips. I mean, I like Dan Neal. I think he's very good. I follow him on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, he's very clever, very good. I really think he's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why we invited him on and <laughs> super happy that he's coming on. Next week is the second part where we're going to be talking about holiday homes, investment properties, rental properties, and some GP specific tips. So if you're not subscribed, then you need to hit subscribe so you don't miss part two, which is coming next week.